Hello, and thanks for joining this episode of Well-Tempered. If this is your first time here, welcome. This is a podcast about the smart, creative, and crafty women in the chocolate industry. I'm Lauren Hynek, chocolate maker, community builder, and host of this podcast. On this interview, we chat with Megan Giller, who has just released her first book, Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution, The Origins, The Makers, The Mind-Blowing Flavors. It is indeed an exciting time to be a part of craft chocolate. Megan had the arduous and delicious task of diving into it head-on and writing about the latest movers and shakers and also the pioneers of this industry. She chats with us on this episode about the process of writing the book, her upcoming book tour coming to many cities across the U.S. this fall, and where she is now on her chocolate journey. Thanks for tuning in. like to just start with a bit of your journey and how you got into all of this, but we can start with something a bit lighter, which might be what's on your bedside table right now? (laughs) Well, I just have cleaned out my entire house because I uh, had papers and chocolate bars and wrappers and everything and books everywhere. So right now there is only my journal, but I have been reading all sorts of memoirs and and stuff, uh, which has been really fun. Those memoirs were on my table. I can tell you what, what they were if you're interested. Sure, why not? Give a shout out to other authors. Yeah, so Rebecca Solnit, The Far Away Nearby. That's one that I've really loved. And it, it was totally not about food or chocolate or anything. So that's been a nice break. And then this isn't a memoir, but I'm reading this very slowly. It's called Refined Tastes, Sugar Confectionery and Consumers in 19th Century America. Um, I don't know if that's exactly bedtime reading, but you know. Who wrote that one? It is by a professor. Her name is Wendy Willowson. It's a great book. It's really, it's a lot about women as consumers too. That's kind of the heart of it actually. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. And now on to other things that might be on your bedside table. You've written a book and you're definitely here to talk about that today. So we're so excited (laughs) that you can spill the beans. And how many times has that metaphor been used for? I know. It's still good though. Okay. Okay. Still good. Still okay. All right. We definitely want to get to a place in the podcast where we walk through that and what it was like to go through that experience. But before we do that, would you be willing to share maybe a little outside of what is on your about page on your website, chocolatenoise.com, who you are, how you got into this, and what makes you a woman in chocolate? Yeah, so I have been a food writer for many years, and I mainly wrote about savory things, although not always by choice. I've always kind of had this huge sweet tooth and desire to write about dessert. And that was actually the column that I pitched a long time ago to Texas Monthly, or that I wanted to pitch, was about desserts. And instead, I decided to do something trendier about trailer food, which was like, this was back when chefs were opening trailers rather than restaurants and stuff. And Austin had so, so many of them. So I did that for a long time, but I never really forgot about this idea about dessert and really chocolate. And when I discovered what was going on in craft chocolate and I don't know this, that this movement was emerging and that the chocolate was so wonderful and also so different than what I was used to eating. And also that no one had really been writing about it in book form after Maricel's book and Chocolate by Rosenblum. 
I was like, all right, let's do this. That's kind of where the seed of it started. We had had the pleasure of sitting down to meet one another in June after the FCIA, and we had talked on a beautiful park bench next to Boba <laughs> Guys, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Yes. And you had mentioned to me that you have gotten to a place where you see the world through chocolate. That has become this lens for you to access other areas of the world. Would you walk us through a bit of what that means? I am a writer interested in telling stories about people and the world. And so chocolate, that's why I kind of was so interested in chocolate in the first place, beyond just that I really like to eat it, is that it had all of these stories that started to unfurl as I learned about the craft chocolate movement, but also just quality chocolate in general. And, you know, every time I think I like I've written every story I can think of about chocolate, something else happens or someone tells me something where I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. Or I meet a personality and I'm like, I would really like to write about them. So there's that part of it. But then I also think that tasting chocolate has kind of taught me to slow down a little bit. You know, you have to slow down when you taste chocolate. You can't chew it and swallow it and move on. And so that's kind of a meditative experience that has been really cool. And then the other part of it too is that I think it's just really made me realize how complicated everything in the world is in terms of ingredients and supply chains and all of that sort of stuff. Because this is one ingredient that I've studied for a while and still don't feel like I know everything about and maybe never will. And everything is like that cheese, sugar, wine, coffee, bread, everything we eat and, you know, our clothes. It, it just the list will, can go on and on if you let it. <laughs> That's brilliant. So through that curiosity of understanding this main ingredient and the travels that it takes on its own, it's, it's really a world traveler. What then led you to want to write a book about this movement and specifically within American craft chocolate, which is your focus? Well, I thought that the stories of the people were really so inspiring and interesting. And the different makers that I talked to were so quirky and were so passionate about what they're doing that that was kind of the heart of it, that I wanted to write those stories. And then in order to write those stories and have kind of a mainstream audience understand it and for myself to understand it, I had to do so much research and exploring and delving into chocolate and how to make chocolate and the machines and the supply chain and all of that kind and stuff. And so then that ended up filling out the rest of the book. I kind of like to think of the book as what I would have wanted to read when I was first learning about chocolate. Like I had tried a couple craft chocolate bars. I didn't really know what I was doing. And I would have really loved some sort of guide or something that could explain it a little bit more. And so that's what I was trying to put together for this book, which maybe is selfish <laughs> in some ways. Make a time machine and go back and hand it to myself. Yeah, well, we can all be learners of the world and always start anew in whatever it is we're, we're currently in. We have here Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution. You had mentioned just a little bit before that another impetus for this was that there had been kind of a lull in books that had been on the market about chocolate that were accessible to the consumer. Would you spend just a moment talking about that? What maybe the books were that triggered your interest in the subject as well? And then we have a very full fall with a lot of chocolate books on the radar. Yes, it's super exciting about all the chocolate books that are coming out. 
Yeah, when I first started really researching chocolate or seeing like, okay, is there even room for me to write a book about all of this? I, you know, of course, wanted to see what else was out there. So I'm looking at my my shelf of chocolate books right now that's right over my my laptop. And, you know, there's, of course, Maricel Precia's book, The New Taste of Chocolate, which is amazing. And that has a lot of history in it and recipes and also almost a field guide to identifying different cacao pods and There's a lot of information in there. And she's a great writer, too, of course. And then, well, I have two favorites. The True History of Chocolate by Sophie and Michael Coe is just such a special book. It it is so influential. I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners have have read it, actually, because it has so much in there. But I can't tell you how many times I was looking things up. My book is not even about the history of chocolate, but there's so many little tidbits and great anecdotes and stuff in there. And then another favorite book is Chocolate by Mort Rosenblum, which came out 2009, maybe, or, or 2005, which is right when the craft chocolate movement was really starting. And the last chapter talks about Steve DeVries and some other small chocolate makers that were just kind of popping up then. It's a very different book than mine. It's a narrative book, but I I kind of like to think of mine as picking up where Mort Rosenblum left off and talking about what's happened to the movement since then. Of course, there are so many other books to talk about, too. You said something about all the books that are coming out, and it's pretty cool. So there's my book, and then there's Dandelion Chocolate's book called From Bean to Bar to S'more, and then... Sean Askinosi and his daughter, Lauren, who also works there and I think is a partner, has written a book, a business book called Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul. And (laughs) Christy Leslie, who's a professor who's done a lot of work on chocolate and the economics and supply chain sort of thing, has a book called Coco that's coming out, I think, in the spring. So that's four. That's incredible. I mean, yeah. yes, that's an absolute testament to this movement and the burgeoning scene around us. What a pleasure to be within it. Totally. I'm very excited about all of those. And I think it's really cool that all of them are so different, too. And I am expecting to learn a lot from those other three books. Indeed. You mentioned the stories and we've discussed the the launch of the book, which will be coming out officially on September 19th. But we have to talk about your website because many of the stories were first launched there. Yes. So Chocolate Noise is my website. And I started the website because I I had this idea for a book, but it wasn't moving as quickly as I wanted it to. And so I said, you know, I I really want to write these stories. It doesn't necessarily need to be in book form. So I decided to put the ones I had online and then kept writing them from there. And it was really cool because then a publisher reached out to me. She said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, well, yes, actually. Yeah, well, that's also an inspiration for a lot of people that might be doing the same. I mean, how many of us start blogs or projects with the aspiration that will be found? Right. And I really had no idea that that would happen because I had assumed that Smitten Kitchen maybe starts as a blog and then turns into a book, but she has a huge audience and this is such a niche topic. So it was really cool to see people outside of the craft chocolate world start to pay attention that Savour had me as a finalist for their food blog awards last year. I was like very surprised and thankful. Wow, that's really cool. So craft chocolate, people are starting to pay attention to it. Not just my stuff, but everyone's, all these other books that are coming out too. So cool. And to go back to the chocolate, we had discussed that there was this moment when you had been interested in desserts and writing about it clearly, but then tasting it. So do you remember why you reached for that first bar of craft chocolate, who it might have been, and, and then also why you continue to open up new wrappers and what experience that brings you? I think what's funny is 
I had no idea I was eating Kraft chocolate at first or what that was. I had tried some higher end bars just around Austin. And then I actually went to Portland on vacation and went to Cacao, which is a great store there, and tried a couple bars and had this experience where they took the time to walk me through different flavor notes. And I was so surprised. And it's kind of that classic story. I actually talk about this in the book that Madagascar launched the craft chocolate movement and launches a lot of people's interest in single origin chocolate too, especially because it's such a surprising flavor. And I was so like, what? There's this intense fruitiness and acidity in chocolate. It just opened this door where I had no idea that chocolate could have so many flavors and so so much going on within it that it's not chocolate is chocolate is chocolate. Chocolate can be all these different things. And so it became about learning and this curiosity and experimenting and trying to find my favorite. How I tried the first bar and then why I kept opening more and eating more of them. So it's a discovery. It's knowing that the next bar will provide something different or you would hope or you're guessing or maybe you even confirm. Yeah. And then I think like now that I know a little bit more like we do with all of our favorite foods, it's kind of trying to recreate that experience of pleasure that you had with another chocolate bar or another you know piece of chocolate cake or whatever it is. Even if it's not the exact same chocolate bar, that you'll have that same kind of transcendent experience or relaxation or whatever it is. When we sat down and chatted, I really loved this example you gave when we were talking about food writing. And you told me that there were two types of food writers. There are those that classify themselves as food writers and also those that love to write about food. Which one do you fall into? I think of myself as a writer who happens to write about food. You know, there's the the person who is a diehard foodie. I know we all hate that word, but I, we, I haven't come up with a better one. And they really want to convey their experiences about what they've eaten or where they've gone. And, and so they end up writing about it. And then there are the people who consider themselves writers um, and who have chosen the topic of food. So I don't know, I guess that's maybe like a more literary type. And I, I hope that I fit into that category. That's what I consider myself too. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying about seeing the world through chocolate. Food is the particular lens that I've chosen to, to see the world, but I would be writing no matter what. There was one piece of that that was also if there's a bit more of a crossover, if you envision, you know, now that you're launching this book and you're going to be known as a chocolate writer by many people, if that sets you up for your career path or if you're interested in exploring other avenues in the future. Yeah, I know. And that's something I think about a lot because I've known for a long time I've never wanted to be a reviewer. I reviewed restaurants for several years and knew that I didn't want to do that anymore. And same with chocolate. I don't want to review chocolate bars or or be a chocolate expert, but I want to continue to talk about chocolate and other foods in terms of how it relates to culture and society and that sort of thing. So um, I don't know if this book sets me up to do that or not. I hope that it sets me up as someone who can tell stories and kind of convey difficult information in an easy and fun way. And then I I think I'm going to take it from there. Do you think that chocolate is humanized or can be? Yeah, I think people definitely humanize chocolate. One thing I've really been researching a lot recently and that I want to be the subject of my next book probably, or maybe a series on chocolate noise, I'm not sure yet, is how chocolate has come to be seen as feminine. And this is like a pretty recent phenomenon. There have always been those elements of it in, in you know thousands of years ago, but it was very masculine for a long time and kind of signified economic prowess. And now it's personified as feminine and for women too. But I'm sure it's humanized in 
lots of other ways too. I think everyone probably has their own relationship with chocolate and chocolate has a personality that's different for each person. Mm-hmm. And it's very interesting to hear you say how it's recently been more of a feminine product, knowing that it's mostly considered made by men. Right. And we're also breaking those boundaries. So I have to give a nod to you in that an article you released about a year ago, you had created a list of female chocolate makers. And that was a huge impulse for me to sit back and say, is anyone talking about this? Is anyone talking about women in the industry? That was really great for just my own personal journey within chocolate. And I hear from you that now you receive updates all the time about people that find that article and say, I'm here, I'm here, me too, me too. Well, thank you. It's such an honor that like that impacted you. And it's a subject that I really want to write and talk more about. And yes, I just got an email the other day from someone saying that I need to update the list and there's a new maker somewhere. It's been pretty cool to keep that up and I don't know, represent those people and honor them in a certain way. And you know, what's cool is there are so many women in chocolate now. It doesn't compare to the number of men in chocolate, but putting that list together, I really thought it was going to be maybe 10 to 20 names and it's much, much longer than that. Mm, That's brilliant. Yeah. And we'll include a link to that so that if people have not found it yet, or if their name needs to be added, we certainly get them there. Yeah, that would be great. And I'll update it and include them. Wonderful. Okay. I would like to stay a little bit longer with this idea of all the time you spent interviewing and researching for these stories to come out through Chocolate Noise and then now within the book and what that was like, what that process was like, because for one, it's a very fast evolving industry. So even day to day, there's new information that can be coming up to the surface. And then also, it's a very intimate act to get to know someone the way that you do through your stories and what that might be like to enter their physical and even mental world. It has been really fun and interesting to to enter those worlds. And, you know, I should probably say I didn't get to visit everyone in person. So some people I have never met in person, like Alan McClure of Patrick Chocolate, we've talked on the phone for years, but have never actually seen each other in person. So that's been an interesting element of it. But yeah, I mean, I think it started out slowly with research for myself and learning about it and then starting to interview these people and really enjoying entering their world and putting together stories about them. I hate to say like the story because there's everyone has so many different stories and just the story that I've written doesn't have to be the story about them. And then what you were saying, too, about the industry changing so quickly, that has been really interesting. The difference between a website and writing a book, because, I mean, there are already makers that I wish that I had profiled in more depth in the book that, you know, I had to turn in my draft over a year ago. As in they've surprised you with how far they've come? Yeah, they've surprised me or they've grown. There are about 14 big profiles in there, and I wish that there were a lot more because I think that is so important to talk about specific people. But, you know, actually writing the book was a pretty intense experience. So, I mean, I knew that I would be writing this book, but I didn't know what my deadline was going to be with the publisher. And so then when it actually came down from the publisher, I realized I had six months to do it. And like you said, earlier versions of some of the profiles had been on my site. So I had those drafts to work with, and I had my own research I'd already done 
for my own benefit, but it was really uh, kind of quarantining myself in my house, slashing through every social event that I had, like, no, I can't do this. I need to just stay here. And I was just kind of in my own world, in my head, living in like, you know, okay, this term needs to be put in the glossary, but I defined it differently in this chapter. So I need to go back and revise that and change this thing and put in that I want a photo of this over here. And one of my favorite stories that I like, you know, I just was thinking about the book and what needed to go in the book and how to structure it so much and also tasting chocolate and stuff that I would just like wake up like in the middle of the night and sit up in bed and just scream like chocolate (laughs) is what I was thinking about all the time and you know it, it was really fun and also sickening too in some ways the whole tasting and pairing section because they're pairing guidelines for all sorts of foods so for beer fortified wine coffee bread cheese tea fruit I put together teams of people who are really great tasters and experts in those other foods, and we did them together, but in just a few months. Wow. No, that sounds like a ton of work and a lot of sensorial reactions there. You know, the old adage of someone who works in an ice cream shop that gets so sick of seeing it, looking at it, smelling it, and then therefore can no longer eat it. Where are you now with your relationship with eating chocolate? I think I might have mentioned this to you before because I never thought this would happen where I have needed a little break from chocolate bars. I mean, if someone hands me a chocolate brownie, I probably will eat it. But I have a huge amount of craft chocolate here. And both my husband and I rarely eat it because, you know, I was just tasting so much of it while working on the book that I've needed a little bit of a break. And I'm starting to come around to it. Still, when I do events and stuff, I still will taste everything. Like tonight, we're going to do an underground chocolate salon and I'm planning on on tasting everything and, and enjoying it. It changes your relationship to it when it's work in general, but also when it's work on an intense deadline like that. I mean, I found that with food in general, and I didn't really expect it to happen with chocolate. It happened with savory food when I was reviewing food, but it never happened with dessert. Now it's kind of happened with dessert. So, (laughs) but I'll come around. Um, It's something I still enjoy, but don't always have a craving for anymore. It sounds like a natural detox. Yes, exactly. Lots of green juice. (laughs) Okay, okay. There's a couple things that this brings up. So one being the underground chocolate salon. That's been something that I have identified with you and your personality and work for some time now. And you do a great job of notifying the public through your newsletters that that's happening. What does that entail for someone who's never been a part of one in person? So the underground chocolate salon is supposed to be a fun, relaxed time for people to get together and try different chocolates. When I first started running it, I had people bring a bar either that they liked or that they'd never tried or just that they had access to because sometimes it's hard to find things. And we would kind of just see what we got and I would organize an order right there and and kind of do a a little guided tasting. And now I have so much chocolate that I, I usually bring it and it's kind of a guided tasting, but it can also just be a conversation. It depends how much people know, because I hate to to throw someone in there who has never even heard of bean to bar chocolate and then suddenly is trying all these single origin chocolates and doesn't have any context. And so it's nice to include some of that. And I bring the cartoons that Nicole Chocolat and I made and use those to kind of illustrate the different parts of the process and things to think about. But what I would like it to turn into is more of an actual salon. And I think about the salons that Gertrude Stein had a long time ago where, you know, which God, it was a long time ago now wasn't it? It was like 100 years ago. You know, there would be performers and people who inspired you in different ways. And also, I kind of just imagine them all sitting around the living room in small clusters talking. So there's lots of different ways to interact. 
I just really felt like I wanted to see people face to face in New York. There were so many people who love chocolate or who are interested in chocolate and we weren't meeting up and forming a community. And so I wanted to, to try to create a space for that. Awesome. And you'll be incorporating some of these, Megan, into your book tour. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. So um, I'm trying to do an underground chocolate salon everywhere I go so that people will be able to hang out and, and try some chocolate with me. I have another one on the books in Seattle at Chocolopolis, and I haven't decided what we're going to taste there yet, But because this is a while off. It's in November, but I think it'll be a lot of fun. And I've done one there last year and was really impressed and amazed at how knowledgeable Lauren Adler's audience is and how involved and curious and excited they were, too. They've been a really fun thing that I, I really enjoyed doing. Yeah, we definitely do need to give a nod to Lauren Adler. She's another fabulous woman in chocolate. Yeah. The part when you're researching, investigating the stories, that idea between how much information exists on the internet these days and what is being told about fine cacao and chocolate and what might be true. Yeah, and I think it's really cool that a lot of people are starting their own sites, reviewing chocolate or posting about cacao and trying to be involved in the community. But I mean, as you were saying, there's kind of like a big difference between research and opinions. I don't know. I mean, I kind of see it as every review is an opinion. You have to take it with a grain of salt. But I think it's also just in general a really positive trend because so many more people are interested in paying attention to craft chocolate. It really speaks to how it's, you know, gaining traction, like you were saying, with all the books coming out. The other thing that I think about a lot is that it's such a confusing genre for consumers still, and consumers still really don't understand what's going on with a $12 chocolate bar and a, or a single origin bar, even it's not $12. And so anything that we can do to get that information to people is good. The term artisan, that's like an interesting one where you're talking about people feeling like we're spreading falsehoods. What does that term even mean? What does craft mean? What does handmade mean? And those are all questions that I had to kind of answer in the book because I had to define some of those things in order to even have a common ground and know what we were talking about. But those are still being defined and it is confusing for people in the industry and out, you know, so I can see how it could be beneficial or damaging or both at the same time, which seems contradictory, but I think it's probably how it is in reality. That's a really good point that you bring up. And we talk about this a lot on various episodes of the podcast where there's just no definitions that have been determined. But furthermore, when you do see the word handcrafted, handmade, artisan, small batch, in a place like Trader Joe's, you have exactly. to then wonder or or maybe not even be surprised that consumers are then scoffing at something they might find at a fine food store. And even to the point where when will high-end chocolate make its way to more affordable shelf space and then have to start another conversation because suddenly the price might have dropped for $5 and, and what does that mean? Will they be able to see behind that and, and the why that it is the case? Yeah, at FCIA, maybe two years ago, Christy Leslie presented some findings she'd done on the word artisan, uh, and she'd done a lot of consumer research. And it was really interesting because it seemed like how craft makers use it is very different than how consumers read it and what they the different meanings ascribe to it. You know, it was a really interesting kind of academic discussion. And then towards the end of the session, one of the makers raised his hands and said, OK, well, should we use it or not? And she said, you know what? People seem to like it. So use it. It is beneficial for you right now. But I thought that was so interesting that it doesn't have a definition, but it's useful. 
Hmm. Yeah, we'll also have to link to that. That's a good point that there's much to be read up on on that. And also just doing our part. I mean, let's be honest here that all of us need to take a stake in how we propagate the word. Right. A reporter asked me yesterday, how do I define craft chocolate? And I had to say that I use craft and bean to bar interchangeably right now. But I think that that's starting to change and will maybe continue to change. I don't know. It's going to be interesting how all these definitions shake out. Right. With every episode that I have in the podcast, I always feel like there's going to be part two in another couple of years. Yes, exactly. We're talking a lot about your writing and with good reason. You're a writer and you have a book coming out. But we had mentioned between one another that there comes a time or maybe just there's this existing aura for a lot of writers where they're writing for someone that might not only be themselves. And Megan, who is that for you? How did you go about finding the tribe that would come along in this journey with you? I think I'm looking for people who are curious about food of all sorts and who also like to read stories and and learn about people. You know, it's interesting. Somehow I got thinking about social media and how I always, you can look at it two different ways of like, okay, it's something that you have to do where you're like creating this content and trying to find people who will follow you and, and be your tribe kind of in this artificial way. Or you can look at it as a way to connect with people that you otherwise wouldn't be able to connect with. And I try to look at it that way and to create a cool space for them with things that they would like to enjoy and that I also enjoy. I think I'm still finding the tribe too, because I think that there are many different tribes within chocolate and people tend to get lumped together because it is such a niche area. One type of food, but even within that, there's so many different personalities and types of writers and readers. You know, if anything, I've had a few days or even weeks and months now to kind of look back and process like what all is happening in my life and like who I'm doing it for and why I'm doing it for myself. And it sticks out so much that like it needs to be for females and it needs to be for women. That's uh, something worth discovering and working through. And actually, I'm really glad you you mentioned women because that really is the tribe that I keep coming back to and have come back to for my whole life. I mean, gender issues and women have always been really important to me and in front of mind. And that's kind of what I think I was saying earlier that I've been reading a lot about femininity and sugar and gender and uh, and chocolate and gender. That is kind of where I see myself going and probably how the tribe will continue to evolve. Right. That was a bit of our next point within our discussion here, because we had talked about just for a moment that it's well known that a lot of men that get involved in chocolate come in from this engineering background, maybe tech And that has also been the case for much of the advertising industry and that has been basically run exclusively by by men who are determining the decisions that women should make in their shopping choices. Same for chocolate. Could you spend some time talking a little bit about the research you've done there and and why that's been another angle from the tribe that you've, you know, built around women and then now discovering this industry that is essentially built for them? It's really interesting when you think about how much chocolate is marketed to women well and dessert and sweet things are marketed to women versus men and I've been doing a lot of research about that and in the book that I mentioned earlier called refined tastes but then I I've also been reading a book chocolate women and empire and it's kind of a more focused case study about the UK and one specific chocolate company called round trees there and their advertising campaigns and how they kind of reflected different beliefs in in society and different ways that advertisers were kind of trying to find the ultimate consumer and that ultimate consumer ended up somehow being women. That's true for many products, but especially 
for food in general and we think about like grocery shopping but then also specifically for sweets and, and chocolate and, and so over time they were trying to appeal to women and so all these things that they associate with women like domesticity and re- being refined and sweet <laughs> became associated with chocolate too. It's been really interesting and I'm obviously still in the middle of exploring all of this. But the original impetus was also that there are so few women in craft chocolate that got me really thinking about it. And then I started looking at advertising and and have kind of gone into the deep end from there. I'm just going to read this excerpt from Google Books, Emma Robertson's Chocolate Women in Empire, because I think it so graciously speaks to what we're talking about. Then we can move on to the next element within that. From Ronald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory to Joan Harris's Chocolat, from romantic gift to guilty indulgence, chocolate has a special place in Western popular culture. But what are the hidden histories behind this luxurious commodity? We'll also add that to our reading list so that we can learn more about what she might have to say. Yes, it's a very well-written book, too. I, I really recommend that. It's obviously very narrow, but really interesting about even the different meanings between a candy bar versus a bonbon and the different types of women those were marketed to and why. And she has really specific documents from advertising agencies saying like, we want to appeal to women because of this. Within chocolate, people have talked a lot about race and minorities and third world countries versus first world countries, but we haven't talked a lot about how gender plays into that. So that's kind of what I'm trying to explore from lots of different angles. Yeah, fascinating subject. And and we're part of the mix. I mean, I've been eating chocolate since I was a little girl. And I do remember why it was handed to me over maybe a little boy standing next to me. Oh, really? I mean, in the simplest sense. Yeah, how it is much more of an assumption that women will like chocolate and should like chocolate. That women have a sweet tooth, too, and that that means something about who we are and how important we are, I guess. So I don't, I can't really flesh out this argument because I'm just starting to read about it. But it kind of the heart of it is that sugar and cacao were these expensive ingredients for a long time. And then especially sugar, as it became devalued, it became more associated with femininity. And somehow that came to mean that women are also devalued. Yeah, that's heavy stuff. It is very heavy stuff. Yeah, I'll have to get back to you on the details of that. one. Part two, like I said, part two is awaiting us in a couple of years. That does lend us, though, to speak to the idea that there are a lot of craft chocolate brands on the market and entering the market right now, and many of them likely will have female consumers. So if you had any recommendations for them on, you know, with the work and the research you've done in the advertising industry, and now that this is becoming a bit more contemporary, but we're bringing to light a new form of chocolate, so to speak, what might they do or say that would appeal to that audience? I know I've been thinking about this a lot. And the advertising examples that I've been reading about are are so ancient that they are not, they're probably not helpful now. And they are also pretty funny to look at because they're so antiquated. I know that this is kind of a stereotypical female quality, but I think really focusing on creating a community and connecting and having a conversation is something that really can appeal to a lot of the female demographic. And so I think that is something that's already really popular in craft chocolate and the artisan food movement in general, but maybe it's something that brands could focus on more if they are kind of courting women. (laughs) And then, I mean, you know, there's also the packaging element and making things pretty, but I think that appeals to women and men. It's a tricky question. I think if I could crack that question, then lots of marketing firms and chocolate brands and stuff would hire me as their marketing consultant. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it is a big question. That's why I threw it out there. I don't think there's a lot of answers to it yet. It does also seem that through this narrative of where cocoa comes from and how artisan chocolate is made and then how it's packaged and currently where it's mostly sold is also not that accessible. And we'll have to be doing some work in the future of what that looks like. Who is it for and who has the ability to purchase it and and when they do purchase it, what are their feelings and feedback? Yes, I feel like the accessibility issue is one of the biggest issues facing the industry right now because I know a lot of people who want to get that kind of chocolate and cannot. People who can afford it but can't find it and maybe don't want to order from across the country every week or whatever it is. So I have had something on my website where if you sign up for the newsletter, I'll send you a free guide to good chocolate in your neighborhood. And I have been really surprised at how many people sign up that way because they really don't know where to find it in their town. And a lot of times it's at these little boutiques and, you know, you have to just kind of know where to look. Good point. It is sometimes like finding a four-leaf clover. Yes, totally. And I know you meant like accessibility in a larger sense, too. But it's like in a very practical sense, I think about that a lot. I did, but it could be both. You're absolutely right. And I was just thinking that I think the shipping concern is one for the environment, but also cost. I've been perusing some other sites to kind of get an idea of what their summer shipping policies are. And I found one recently that was $50. Wow. I believe it, though. It's a- Yeah. And it might be priced correctly, right? Which is the irony of it. But it was certainly a deterrent for me in that moment. About the book, I want to say that it was a very trying experience, but also really rewarding to work on the book and to put all of those things in, in one place. But then also to see that become a physical object has been really kind of crazy. I mean, you know, I mean, I've wanted to write a book since I was in elementary school. So, like I'm holding my, my advanced copy of my book right now. And that's a pretty crazy feeling. I look at some of these words and I'm like, did I really write this? It seems like I was in some sort of trance or something. But it's it's been really cool also to work with story publishing. And I feel like it was really a team effort. And I knew that, that that's how publishing was because I worked at a publishing house for several years as an editor. But I really learned a lot more about that and how closely I had to work with the photo editor and the art director and even the illustrator who was a freelancer and my editors and all these different pieces that came together. And it it was pretty intense, but cool. And it's really rewarding to see it as a finished product. And well deserving that you have taken it to this level. Did you want to talk about what maybe the trying experiences were? You kind of said you were holed up for a long time and that social life activities were cut. But is there something that came to you that felt like, wow, I'd never thought I would experience this? I lived in Austin for about 14 years and I knew a lot of people there. I had a gym that I loved going to and was a really tightly knit community. And, you know, I I loved being outside and kind of experiencing the laid back culture there. And so then to move to New York, which I moved about two years ago, I guess about six months after that, or maybe almost a year, I started working on the book. And in terms of like, I actually had a contract and a deadline with my publisher. So moving to a new city, not knowing a lot of people. I mean, I, of course, had my husband, but we were still making friends and all sorts of stuff. And then working on such an intense project where like I really couldn't go to a co-working space. I needed to have 
all 10 of my books and a billion papers and my laptop in silence in order <laughs> to concentrate on what I was doing. That was a pretty uh, lonely time in a lot of ways too. And I think that's why I said it was so trying. And I, I don't know if I coped well with that. Like, you know, I wish I could say like, I went on a run every day and meditated and I was like in such a good mental space. But no, I was a total wreck and not fun to be around. <laughs> and I think that's sometimes part of the creative process too, that you just have to go through some of that. The good thing is now, since going through something like that one time, now I've had a little bit of distance and I'm like deep into planning the book tour and promoting the book, and which is taking a lot of energy and it's almost a, a full-time job right now. But I have actually been meditating for about three months every day. It's something that I've done off and on for many years, but I feel like it's really helping me right now. And I don't know, helping me stay a little bit sane as I'm doing some another part of the book that is also very challenging. I do sometimes feel like, okay, maybe I just shouldn't make any social plans or, or anything else because it's hard for me to, to keep my calendar straight and, and different details for different events. But you have to balance everything. And that's one thing I definitely learned while working on the book before and not balancing things. That's super big of you to acknowledge that. And something that we had remarked together was that it can be so easily equated to the life of the solo chocolate maker, or, you know, maybe even the confectionery bonbon maker that spends often so much time alone, cooped up within the walls of their factory or kitchen space and struggles at times too, to, to recognize that relationship between their purpose and also just the work that needs to get done. They seem very different, someone writing at their desk versus, to, or, you know, making chocolate or making bonbons. But in a lot of ways, they're so similar because we're both running our own businesses. And it, I never thought about writing in that sense in the past. That's what you're doing. You're running a business and creating a brand, as obnoxious as that term is. And you're an entrepreneur, you know, you're, you're writing for yourself, but you're also trying to get your writing out there. So, and that's exactly what chocolate makers are doing. They're working long hours on their own and trying to make or to create, you know, the best possible thing they can and then figuring out how to get it out there. We were talking about social media earlier. That's like a huge frustration for me because you can't be gathered enough to write and do social media at the same time. They're just totally different headspaces. I know that I know a lot of chocolate makers struggle with this too and like you know the amount of time they spend alone and how to balance their workload with the rest of their life and having a life yep can't say that I'm winning at it <laughs> I know I think we're all still figuring it out indeed I think that's where community comes into play and that's a huge piece of why many of us are so interested in gathering because it's a time to make that acknowledgement that yeah I'm feeling this too one of the quotes that sticks by me quite often is that the strongest statements humans can make to one another is me too. Yeah. So I feel ya. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been so great to get to know your journey to writing this book. And we will be sure to include all of the details where people can order and find you on your book tour. I always close this podcast with the two questions related around chocolate and cacao. And the first one being, what does cacao mean to you? So I've said this earlier in, in our talk, but cacao and chocolate are a lens I use to see the whole world. And that's what it means to me. But it's also my favorite food. <laughs> and it will always be my favorite food. Oh, that's great. Maybe that's a Pollyanna thing to say. But I mean, at the heart of it, that is why I'm interested in chocolate and why I do all of this. Because I, I love stories about people, but I also really love chocolate, too. 
And now your three chocolates to the cosmos. This at times can be a bit conflicting for some because they're like, oh my gosh, how do I choose three of my favorites? But I always also add the inclusion of pun intended. Uh, it can be <laughs> origins or, you know, specific makers. Or- yeah. So this is a very hard question for me, but I think I've thought of three that I would I would choose. So Fruition's Marignan Dark Milk was a life-changing chocolate for me. It was also the first time I'd ever had dark milk chocolate, which is one of my favorite categories. But that one in particular is just mind-blowing and I could eat it forever. Askinosi's Crunchy Sugar Crystals and Vanilla Bean, which is a collaboration with Zingerman's. I'm sure you've had it, but it's, you know, a little gritty. It's supposed to be Mexican style. That is also a very addictive bar for me. Those are two inclusions, right? So I have to have a single origin because I don't think I could go out into the cosmos without a single origin. And I really am a fan of nutty chocolate. Everyone loves cacao from Venezuela, right? This is not a secret. I would choose, if I could just choose like a region, I would choose Venezuela. But if I had to choose a specific bar, I would choose Dandelion's Mantuano Venezuela bar. Oh, yummy. Now I'm ready for my chocolate snack of the afternoon. So thank <laughs> you for that impulse to to get back to my snacking. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Megan. We wish you so much luck within the book tour and also just discovering where you go next with your fabulous projects, celebrating all of us in the industry. So thank you for the work that you do. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you, Megan, for being well-tempered. And thank you all for listening. I have here in my hands a copy of her book. It is beautifully illustrated and the photos are absolutely stunning, and it is sure to become a reference for many consumers to learn about our industry and the waves that we're making within it. As we discussed on the episode, there's a ton of books coming out this fall and into early next winter around the topic of craft chocolate and fine cacao. That includes Dandelion Chocolates, Making Chocolate from Bean to Bar to S'more, Meaningful Work, A Quest to Do Great Business, Find Your Calling and Feed Your Soul by Sean and Lauren Askinosi, Coco by Christy Leslie, Chocolate Alchemy, a Bean to Bar Primer by Kristen Hard of Cacao Atlanta, and also a Whiskey and Chocolate book by R.M. Peluso, the author of Deep Tasting, A Chocolate Lover's Guide to Meditation. As we stated earlier, this is just such a fun time to be within this ever-evolving space, and I wouldn't be able to do episodes like this without all of your hard work, determination, and passion. I so appreciate you all for doing what you do and also for listening to this. If it struck a chord with you, I would appreciate it if you would share it on social media, leave a review on iTunes, or tell me about a woman that you think that I should interview in an upcoming episode. The Mujeres Milagros retreat was a huge success in Santa Fe, and we are already planning the next dates for 2018. Please stay abreast to when that will be happening. I know that there's a lot of upcoming events this fall as well, and I hope to see many of you at those gatherings. Until next time, thank you so much, and stay well-tempered. One morning when I was a child, my mommy asked me with a smile, what you will be when you get older? The only thing I have clear is just to make this it won't matter. She looked at me and with her voice as she answered, If you want.